Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you worshiping with us here at Faith Bible Church. I also want to say good morning to those that might be listening to us via video that can't make it uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, it is always a great privilege to get before you and bring the word of the Lord to you. I pray that you've been blessed by the series that we are going through, which is in the book of Ruth. I'm going to take a moment and just uh, discuss that briefly for some of you that might not have been uh, with us. I want to give sort of a summary, and then we're going to fall as where we are in the second chapter of Ruth, which I really consider to be sort of the turning point of the book, and in a moment you will understand that. Uh, I pray that this uh, series has been a blessing to you. It essentially is talking about God's goodness and grace in the midst of life's pain. And we've been discussing how sometimes in life we can go through painful situations, uh, really, that are not of our own construction. Uh, I think that several of us would agree that we will be just doing the best that we can in life, doing everything that we can do uh, to work hard, uh, provide for family, etc., etc., and then uh, a hard knock comes. And out of the blue, we're dealing with perhaps the loss of a loved one, or maybe we're dealing with a financial situation, a loss of a job or a need of one. Maybe we're dealing with a challenging child or a challenging relationship, or maybe we're dealing with a challenging work environment, whatever it might be. I think also that we would agree, and I think that if we were to take a poll, that all of us at some point in our life have experienced some form of pain some form of challenge, some form of difficulty. And one of the things that I want to say is that as a pastor, I, I never want people to experience pain. I'm not sitting here saying, okay, let's get a nice dose of pain. But what I will also say, and I said it before, is that some of the most rich individuals or full individuals in Christ are those that have gone through the most painful situations. And so in this ironic, weird way, there's an aspect of saying if it is going to draw someone to a fuller or deeper relationship with Jesus so that they might shine his light more in our world, then is pain necessarily a bad thing? It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? This morning, we're looking essentially at a book in where individuals experience a huge amount of loss and pain. I've said before that their situation went from challenging to difficult to desperate to complete despair. And what we see in the book of Ruth that is essentially right after the book of Judges chronologically, but also during the period of Judges, is that it's a very difficult and dark spiritual time for God's people. The title, Ruth, is actually titled after sort of the heroine in the story, who is the daughter-in-law to Naomi. Now, Ruth is a Moabite, and we'll discuss that, so we've been following through, but we'll lay context to what is going on in this story before we drive into today's message. Uh, during this time, God's people are experiencing a famine in the land. We have to recognize that for them, obviously, the harvest and the uh, ability for economics during that time centered around harvesting. A famine would be as if, for us today, the, the economy crashed, it tanked. And so they decide, well, if we can't 
provide for ourselves in the land of Bethlehem, where they lived, that they would go somewhere else. So Elimelech and Naomi choose to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab and provide a life for themselves because they've discovered that that's where maybe we can sort of get by. And for a while, things seem to be going well. It seems as if they've made a good decision. But unfortunately, what happens is during the time that they are in Moab, uh, Naomi's sons marry two women, Orpah and Ruth, two Moabites. Life seems to be going well. For them, not only did the provision of the harvest provide economically for them, but if you had male figures in your life, so if you had a husband, and then if you had sons, that's how you were provided for. That was your security blanket. Life is going on as normal. Everything seems to be happening just fine. And then out of the blue, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. That's not a necessarily good thing. However, in sort of this economic provision system, at least she still has her two sons to provide for her and for their wives. But as we look in the beginning of Scripture, and as we look in sort of the first part of this book, her two sons also pass away. So now Naomi is without her husband, her daughters-in-law are without their husband, and the simplest way to say this is they are without hope. They are without provision. A situation has gone from challenging to bad to worse to desperate to complete despair. As we look through and as we've traveled through this book, we discover that Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, completely logical, the best thing for you to do, the wisest thing for you to do, is to go and find yourselves husbands in Moab. Don't worry about me, my life is really challenging, but for you to get by, go and find yourself husbands so that they can provide for you. We sort of see this tagline in scripture where uh, Naomi says, you know, even if I were to get married, even if today I were to get married, and then down the road I was to provide some sons for you to marry, you would have to wait an incredibly long time in order to be provided for. So go, it's okay, leave, and now find yourself husbands to provide for you. And what we've discovered is, is Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, who we've dis also discovered, and the name means the back of her neck, says, okay, uh, I'm going to do what you've told me to do, and she essentially exits stage right, and off she goes, and she exits the story. We don't hear really any more of her. Perhaps she married, Perhaps she did not, but she sort of exits stage right and she's out of there. Ruth, on the other hand, does something completely illogical, something completely that is not within the tradition of the day. She turns to Naomi and she says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to trust in what's going to happen. And we see that wonderful line in the first chapter, verse 16, where she says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Huge act of faith, huge act of trust, 
something completely non-cultural. And off she goes. She leaves the land that she knows, knowing that she has no protection or no provision, to go to a land that she does not know, to trust in a people whom she doesn't fully understand, to trust in a God whom she's essentially just met. And we travel into this story where just out of the blue, just with an ironic aspect, we've talked about this last week, that Ruth decides to go and provide for Naomi by gleaning in the fields of the harvest. We talked about how gleaning essentially is picking up the scraps of the harvest. The harvesters would go, they would gather whatever it was that they were going to utilize, so wheat or barley in this instance, and then gleaners were allowed to come and sort of pick up what was left over. And actually, we discover in Scripture that in Leviticus 19 that this is God's provision for the poor. There's actually a, a law that says you are to allow poor individuals to glean in your field. But we have to also help you understand that this is essentially the lowest of the low. You are the poorest of the poor. You are overlooked. People that went to glean in the field, if they were lucky, maybe could get enough to provide at least to keep them from starvation, but they weren't eating a full meal. And so we travel into this interesting aspect of Scripture, and we come to discover that it just so happens Okay, and I'm putting that in quotes, that Ruth is gleaning in a field of Boaz. Now, Boaz, we're going to discover in a moment, has a unique aspect to Ruth and Naomi. He is a man of stature, or a man of great wealth, or a man of great influence. And interestingly enough, what we see is in Scripture, that word will be different as you look at a different variety of versions of Scripture. And the reason for that is the word there that is used encompasses so much about the greatness of Boaz that these words have to be stated to really encompass the original word that was written in Hebrew. Interestingly enough, Boaz will function, and we're going to see this in a moment, as an archetype to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is functioning on a temporal level as to what Christ functions for us on a theological level in terms of being a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. Someone who comes in, pays a price, and gives so that Ruth can be protected and provided for. Interestingly enough, Ruth is gleaning in the field. Boaz comes forward and he says, who is this woman? And one of his sort of help persons says, well, that's Ruth. And he's like, oh, I've heard about her. I've heard about what's happened. And the helper says, yeah, she's been in the field since the beginning of the day. And she's continuing to move forward and gleaning. Now, someone of Boaz's stature, someone of Boaz's sort of influence and power can completely ignore that, completely look it over and just say, okay. Because number one, she's a gleaner, so she's not someone of importance. Number two, she's a Moabite. She's an alien. 
He could say, I don't want a Moabite gleaning in my field. The provision that is stated in Leviticus is for the people of God. And there's enough people out there that need my help. So let them glean, get rid of her. But what does Boaz, uh, Boaz do? He says, not only let her glean, but let her come to a position with the other women in the field of equality so that she can receive the harvest. And P.S., by the way, men in the field, you're not to touch her. You're to leave her alone because it was dangerous for females to be out in a field with other males around them, particularly someone from Moab. And Boaz says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide beyond what you can possibly imagine. And what we discover is she goes and she harvests, and we ended last week's message where she's able to gain an epa, which essentially is a, an amount of grain. And scriptures kind of vary on this, but it's anywhere from two to five sort of gallons of grain. You go, well, what does that mean? The more important aspect of this is, is that she gleans so much that not only is she just provided for, it's not like, okay, well, you know, here's enough grain to help you get maybe half of your nutritional value for today, and then you got to figure it out again tomorrow. It's enough to provide for her and Naomi as what individuals will estimate for at least two weeks to a month. So a huge amount of provision that Boaz has given her. And that is where the story begins to turn, and we will pick up this morning in verse 18 of chapter 2. Before we do, though, I want to take a moment and I want to talk to you about pain. How many of you experienced a painful situation in your life? I think pretty much everyone. Uh, for me, what I can remember now, I have experienced individuals passing away in my life prior to this situation. But as I look back on the story that I'm about to tell you, this was the first time that a death hit me really hard because it was a tragic aspect. Uh, in my ninth grade year, a very, very good friend of mine lost his older brother who had just gone off to college in a car accident. And I remember, essentially, the shock of hearing that news. But what I also remember is my friend appeared to be doing well. Uh, just kind of continued with life. And everybody said, gosh, he's doing so well. He's engaged. He's doing this. And things seemed to be going fine for him. And so here's what I want to open with in the, this morning is a question that we're going to answer. That in the midst of life's pain, where should our hope rest? Has anybody experienced pain and begun to lose hope? Or excuse me, lose hope? Yeah, I see some hands being raised if you're honest. Okay, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Pain can sort of move you to a position where you begin to question, where is hope? Where should it lie? And that's really the joy of what we discover in this story. We look back, essentially, at Naomi and Ruth and Orva, and they 
experienced a great amount of pain. They lost their husbands. They lost their providers. They lost their protection and provision. I guarantee you that they experienced a huge amount of pain. Interestingly enough, Ruth chooses to follow or trust in God's people and in the Lord by following Naomi back to Bethlehem. She trusts, but then she also acts. We discover, as we've seen, that Ruth just doesn't sit there, but she gets up early in the morning and goes and gleans in the field and wanting to provide for herself and for Naomi. And then we discover, obviously, that she just so happens to be in Boaz's field. Just so happens that Boaz sees her, and it just so happens that Boaz provides for her in over in an abundant way. The interesting part of this is, is that God is behind the scenes, sovereignly working this whole situation to display his love, his mercy, his grace, his provision, and his protection to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. But sometimes, when we experience pain, what do we do? Do we confront it head on? What's interesting with my friend is that everyone had talked about how well he was doing. And I wasn't the wisest person, please hear me on this, but for me, something just wasn't right. My friend was doing too well. And what I came to find was that about two or three years later was when finally he began to engage the pain that he experienced. We often try to push pain away. We try to numb it with other things. We try to put things in our lives to distract us from confronting what it is that hurts us. Interestingly enough, several of you know J.K. Rowling. Does that name sound familiar? The author of the famous Harry Potter series. This is what she says. She says, numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. How many of you might be numbing the pain right now? How many of you might be trying to escape the pain in your life? Either pushing it away, ignoring it, overriding it. Maybe you're moving to other things to try to numb the pain. Maybe it's working harder. Maybe it's utilization of drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's in sexual conquests. Maybe it's just in pushing life aside and saying, I'm just going to get through. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is, is that that will work for a little while. But I think that this statement is so profound because as you try to numb the pain, it's just going to make it worse when you finally feel it. Sometimes, whether we like it or not, we have to walk through the pain. And I've said that very carefully, not push through the pain, but walk through the pain. Because in that, what we begin to discover is when we do, and when we turn our lives toward God, we begin to discover the fullness of Christ and his love, his mercy, and his grace toward us. Interestingly enough, uh, I love this. In Isaiah 66, 9, in the New Christian Version, 
This is what the words say. It says, I will not cause pain without allowing something new to be born, says the Lord. Think about that for a minute. Meditate on that for a minute. I will not cause pain without allowing something new to be born, says the Lord. How interesting is this? Because what the Lord is speaking to in Isaiah is essentially the bringing of the Messiah of whom he's going to destroy on our behalf so that we might have life or new birth. Think about the pain that Christ endured on our behalf. But God didn't bring that pain without allowing something new to be born. And praise God, something new has been born through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is our salvation through him, which is firm and secure when we place our faith and trust in him. Sometimes in your life, what God is doing is allowing pain to either bring you to him or to draw you closer to him. And so we look and we say, in the midst of life's pain, where should our hope rest? And I want to throw this up to you. Hope, the acronym. What does it mean? Hold on. Pain ends. Some of you right now might just be holding on. Some of you might be looking and just saying, how do I hold on? How do I go about doing this? And what I want to tell you is, is as you hold on, pain ends. But it can end either in a good way or it can end in a bad way. And that is determined by where you place your hope, which is where we're going to see as we travel in this passage of Scripture this morning. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to pick up in Ruth chapter 2, we're going to be looking essentially at verse 18, and we are just at the point, again, where Ruth has gone out, leaned in the field, Boaz has discovered her, he has provided a means of protection and provision for her, and she's now returned home to essentially where she's living with Naomi, with this epa of grain. And that's where we pick up in the story this morning. Verse 18, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Don't miss this. She's eaten to where she's satisfied, and now there's even more to provide for Naomi. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Don't miss this, because the, the, the man, Boaz, didn't have to take notice of her. Then we told her mother-in-law about the woman whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Notice the faith that is sort of strewn through this interchange. The Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. 
He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And that's going to become important in a moment as we travel through this, this passage. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And I've talked before about Boaz being a kinsman redeemer and then Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. We're going to develop that even more this morning as we travel through scripture. In the temporal sense, okay, in Ruth's day, a kinsman redeemer was a relative who could come along and provide for a family member who had experienced great loss. If you were sort of in the family line, an aunt, an uncle, or a distant relative could come forward and say, you know what, I will provide for them. So ironically, just so happeningly, right, we discover that Ruth gleams in the field of Boaz. Boaz just so happens to take notice of Ruth, and it just so happens that Boaz is in the line of Naomi. And the world says, coincidence. But we know it's God's providence. Sometimes in your life, these little coincidences that you might take for granted are actually the sovereignty of God working a great work in your life. The reason that I want to pause on this for a minute is often we look for big things of God to do, but what we miss is that God is doing a big thing through a series of little things. We see the big story of Ruth as we travel through the book. We see how God provides for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. But we have to take a moment and recognize that the, the way this book is written is beautiful in the sense that these little things that seem coincidental to the temporal world, as we look at the greater story of Ruth and the providence of God working for Ruth's redemption, protection, and provision. We uh, follow along, and it says here in the uh, Verse uh, 21, then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until, uh, until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi told Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Simple passages, a sort of simple temporal story, but there's so much going on in the spiritual aspect, behind the scenes about God is working. The first thing that I want us to see as we travel through this is essentially in the first two verses. And sort of the concept that I want to encourage us with is this, that in the midst of life's pain, our hope comes from Jesus, who is our generous provider. Think through this for a minute. Our Savior Jesus Christ wants to provide for you in a rich and overabundant way, if you allow him to do so. Now, I want to be very careful on this, because I'm not going to turn this into a prosperity gospel. I'm not going to tell you that if you trust Jesus, he's going to provide for you. You know, abundant wealth beyond all measure. 
just give your life to Jesus and you become rich? Maybe. But in Ruth's day, provision meant protection and it meant security. And what we need to remember and recognize is, is that like Boaz, Jesus provides for us over and abundantly through his death on the cross so that we might have life. Here's where I'm going with this. Like Ruth, she could have just gleaned in a field for a day. Gotten in, gotten a couple of things, done her thing, Boaz wouldn't have taken notice of her. Could have provided a little bit just to kind of get the grumbling out of her stomach, but then who knows about Naomi. What we discover is not only does Boaz say, no, stay in my field and I will protect and provide for you, but continue in the harvest with me till the end. And not only stop in gleaning, but move to the position of harvesting so that you're receiving the first fruits of the labor that is out there. And not only are you going to receive the first fruits of the labor that is out there, you're going to receive more than you need. There's going to be enough for you to be satisfied, and there's going to be more than enough for Naomi to be satisfied. Over and beyond what is expected. Now, we've been talking about how Boaz functions as sort of a typological aspect to Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. We're going to discuss that in a moment. But we also know, how has God generously provided for us? Sometimes we forget it. We put it behind because our life isn't exactly what we want. But for everyone in this room, no matter where you are with your health, with your economic situation, with the relationships that you are in, the great equalizer, the great provider to all of us through Jesus, like Boaz, is this. He has moved you from death to life with him in his kingdom throughout eternity in heaven. That's number one. And then he says, stay in my field. Don't go anywhere else. I will provide for you. And not only will I provide for you, I will provide for you overly and abundantly because you are now my adopted son or daughter with full rights and privileges to my kingdom of which is your inheritance guaranteed, period. And so the day that we go to be with the Lord, we are greeted in Christ as son or daughter when we are actually similar to Ruth the Moabitess. Last week I said before, is anyone here Jewish? Okay, this is important because Ruth a Moabitess is not a person of God. She's not in the tribe. She's not in the in crowd. And what I love about this is the fact that Boaz is providing for Ruth a Moabitess is this typological aspect that's going to show God's people that Jesus will provide for the outsiders as well. And not only will he provide for the outsiders as well, he will provide for them overly and abundantly. And they will move from, and this is interesting, you kind of read in the story, like why are they constantly saying mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, right? Why is that there, and why is that sort of always throughout this passage? The purpose behind it is that the author is demonstrating the outside aspect of Ruth, but then the inside familiar relationship that she receives 
through Naomi and Boaz, in which she becomes wife and daughter. We, similarly, are outsiders to Jesus. But when we place our faith and trust in him, we become sons and daughters of the living king with full rights and privileges. And we are generously provided for by him. In verse 18, she carried back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Over and abundant. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. It wasn't like, oh, I've got to divide it and I'll take a little bit and I'm still hungry. She was fully satisfied. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this, that when you go, sometimes you might feel like you are simply gleaning from Scripture. Anybody ever go and sort of sit down with your Bible and there's days where you just feel like you're picking up the scraps? I promise you that God's Word never returns null and void. That when we turn to Him, when we trust in Him, when we stay in His field, we move from gleaning to harvesting. And it might take time, and it might be hurtful, it might be painful, but little by little we begin to reap the harvest of God in our lives. And that's a wonderful thing. Please understand me that sometimes we can think that if I just trust God more, then I'm going to reap a harvest of prosperity in my life. And I don't think that's what that's saying here. I think it's saying in our world that when we glean from the fields of God, whether or not we reap a harvest of what is financially or temporally blessing, we reap a harvest of Christ in our lives, which brings us to a fullness that we recognize that that is enough. And if we continue to do it, then it ruminates through us to others and provides for other people. So here's a question for you. When you're harvesting or leaning in the field of Scripture, do you ever think that perhaps maybe the reason that you're gleaning that day is not necessarily to fill you up, but it's to sort of provide for somebody else down the road? It's to provide for a Naomi who might be struggling, who can't provide for herself. Sometimes when I look at Scripture, and there are days when I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, well, I just read that, and... Yeah, I know it's true. I know God's word doesn't return all and void, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it, God. I don't really know what's going on here. I don't. Maybe I need to just recognize and trust that that day is not necessary to fill me, but perhaps it's to put something in my tank that down the road God will use to allow me to fill someone else so that they see the fullness of Christ as well. And they have enough. Because Naomi couldn't do it. So Ruth was the one who provided for her. Sometimes in the midst of life pain, our hope comes from Jesus, who is our generous provider. Don't ever forget the generous provision of God. Then we move to verse 20 through 22, and what we discover here is that in the midst of life's pain, our hope comes from Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer. We're going to develop that here so that we sort of really tie that together today. What we see in verse uh, 20 is it says, 
The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. I love that. Because doesn't that equal exactly what Jesus does for us? He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And again, we've said temporally what that means is, is that this is a relative who can protect or provide for family due to the fact that they are in the familial line. Now, for a long time, we've been talking about how essentially Boaz serves as the archetype to Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer. And we're going to work through this quote. What I would encourage you to do is at the end, there is this source to this. It's basically uh, by Nick Batson. Two ways Boaz points us to Christ as our kinsman redeemer. Um, Google that and go to www.beautifulchristianlife.com. Type that in. Um, and there's sort of a, it's about a page and a half more full description. Um, what I've done with it so that we're not reading all of it is I've shortened it and kind of given you the sweetness of it. But if you want the full aspect, this is a beautiful article on the typological aspect that Boaz is to our Savior Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going to walk through to help you see this. It starts and he says, Many theologians have acknowledged the typological role that Boaz played in redemptive history. Boaz is a type of Christ. Yet there are two significant elements of the work of Boaz, the typical redeemer, that must be recognized. Boaz had to honor and keep the demands of the Mosaic law. We remember and recognize that in Leviticus 19, it says that when people are in your field who are poor, you are to allow them to glean. So he is honoring that aspect. He is also going to honor the aspect later that as a kinsman redeemer, it is his job to provide for those who are in need and cannot save themselves. Not only does Boaz have to honor and keep the demands of the law, and Boaz had to pay a price to redeem Ruth. Don't miss this. This is a beautiful picture of the dual nature of the work of Christ Jesus. First fulfills the righteous requirements of the law of God. Jesus has to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law of God so that we might be full in him. And then he pays the price in his death on the cross. Do you see how Boaz is essentially a type of Christ? Together, these two aspects of obedience of Christ form the grounds of our justification. How do we move from death to life? How do we know that we are indeed saved in Jesus? By his obedience and death, Christ has merited righteousness for his people. 
He is our Redeemer according to, the, according to the prescriptions of his Father, as typified in the laws of the kinsman Redeemer. Boaz serves as a typological aspect to our true kinsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law and pays a price by dying on the cross so that we, we might have life. And what we're going to see in a moment as we travel through these next passages of Scripture is that Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, goes above and beyond what is required of him. Boaz could have easily said, you know what, I've done enough. I allowed you to glean in my field. You've gotten your provision. That's fine. Go on. I've done my duty. Leave me alone. And oftentimes, sometimes we might think that God would come before us and say, you know what, I've done enough. I've done my duty. Leave me alone. Does everybody feel that way sometimes? You're crying out to God. You're wondering where he is. You're wondering what he's doing. And you're thinking, okay, well, maybe God has saved me, but I sure don't feel like he cares about me and wants to know me and wants to know me deeply and intimately and personally. And what we're going to discover is that Boaz goes way beyond what's required of him. We're going to discover that he moves forward and marries Ruth and provides for her. And what I love about this is, guess what? A complete outsider, a complete loser, a complete woman who is destitute without hope, Someone who the world would write off and say, you know what? She's done. She has no hope. Gets married to Boaz and is provided for, but this is what I love. Ruth becomes what? The line of Jesus in his story. An outsider becomes an insider who provides our Savior. You think that you're an outsider and that God doesn't care about you and God can't use you and God doesn't want you because you don't fit the mold? Look at Ruth and look at what God does through an absolute outsider to make her the big insider through His grace, His sovereignty, his provision, and his design. We move on, and not only do we find that in the midst of life's pain, our hope lies in Jesus, who was our kinsman redeemer, we recognize and see that in the midst of life's pain, our hope is secured through our obedience to Jesus. And this becomes important in verse 23, before we really, let's see, sorry, somehow my uh, scriptures got turned on me. Before we, we, we turn really to the, to the full sweetness, okay, of the story, where it really starts to get good, where we really see the, see the blessings, we have this verse. And it says, so Ruth stayed close to the servant girls. Boaz said, stay with me, stay in my field and glean. Now Ruth could have said, okay, that's fine, but I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Right? How often?
often does God say, stay close to me, lean in my field? And what do we do? We say, okay, God, it's not happening for me, so I'm going to go off and lean in my own field. Lovingly, how does that go for us? Okay? So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to lean until the barley and wheat harvest were, fish, uh, were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She obeyed what was asked of her. Oh, we got to obey what's asked of us from God? That just seems so shackling. It seems so legalistic. It seems so... Uh... Look at back at Boaz. Boaz isn't being legalistic. He's just offering whole provision and protection for Ruth, who doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, and shouldn't receive it. But Boaz says, here, you're welcome. You're welcome to glean in my field. Let me provide for you in an abundant and an unblessing way. So lovingly, sometimes when you might feel shackled by Scripture, can I encourage you to look back and say maybe you need to re-recognize what that shackling is and you're not shackled at all. You're actually protected and provided for by God through obedience to Him and His Word. In the midst of life's pain, our hope is secured through our obedience to Jesus. Lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. Oftentimes, what I discover, even in my own life, but with a lot of other people, is that if they are continuing to experience challenge, hurt, or pain, sometimes it's that they're not being obedient to God. And lovingly, one of the things that I would ask is, is, okay, well, if this is going on in your life, are you moving toward God and being obedient to Him, or are you wanting to glean in another field? One of the things that is so interesting, and I think it's stated so well in Psalm 39, 6-7, is this, that man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about but only in vain. How many of us are working so hard for our lives? And I'm not saying not to work hard. Okay? Whatever you do, whatever your passion is, uh, whatever uh, job you have, or whatever uh, engagement you're involved in, do with the best of your ability, right? But to what end? So, so often we try to find our comfort, our hope, our rest in these temporal things. And here's what the scripture says. You bustle about to and fro only in vain. You heap up wealth. Not a bad thing. Not knowing who will get it. What happens when you die? Right? I mean, the old adage, right? You can't take your wealth with you. So where does it go? Well, maybe you, you know, divide it up with family inheritance. That's great. You provide it for family. That's nothing wrong. But you can't keep it. Similar to Ruth's statement. My hope is in you. Ruth, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. My hope 
is in you. May I be obedient to you. May I be obedient to what it is that you're calling me to do. May I be obedient to what it is that you ask of me in Scripture. Non-legalistic, but wholly prescriptive and relational in the aspect that we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, I lovingly ask this. Perhaps your pain is coming from the fact that you are not remaining obedient to God. Sometimes that pain is God's way of lovingly want to draw you to himself. Lovingly, Kelly and I absolutely adore our little guy Noah, right? But we're in that stage right now of bumps, bruises, and discovery. And oftentimes, we watch the little guy, and I look, and I'm like, yep, this is going to go bad. And he climbs up and, you know, climbs on the chair and stands up, and the next thing you know, you know, he's like, I'm the king of the world, the chair falls, and, you know, we have tears and all that kind of good stuff. In a funny but quite serious way, those are the times where you kind of look and you say, hey, I've warned you, I've said it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well if you don't obey. And what does he do? Doesn't obey. <laughs> and then it doesn't go well. And what do I do as his father? Ha ha! Right? You deserve it. Good for you. I'm glad you're hurting. No, what do I do? Every single time. Yes, it drives me crazy. Yes, there are times when I'm like, why don't you get this, buddy? No, you run over, you wrap your arms around him, and you say, I'm here, I care about you, and I love you. And little by little, Noah learns that perhaps maybe listening to his father, whom he doesn't want to obey because it seems like it's more fun to climb on the chair and do all of this, right? Maybe his dad actually knows a thing or two. Maybe God, your father, knows a thing or two. And as much as you want to get up in the chair and as much as you want to scream, I'm the king of the world, when God says, no, I don't think that's the right thing to do, you have a choice to either obey or to deny. But here's what I love about God. Even when we don't obey, God doesn't write us off. God doesn't say that's it, I'm done. Even when we hurt because we've been disobedient and we are in pain, we can go back to God and say, you know what, God? I messed up and I need you and I want you in my life. And God as a father comes forward and wraps his arms around you and he says, come here little buddy or come here my sweet little girl and let me put my arms around you and show you how much I love you. I know it hurts, but I'm here. And that's what I love about this story of Ruth. And not only does it hurt, but I'm here, but you're mine. And not only are you mine, but you're mine eternally. And not only are you mine eternally, but you have an inheritance. And not only do you have an inheritance, but it's a great inheritance. And not is that inheritance just enough, it's more than you can possibly ever fathom. So much so that when you draw to me, when you look to me, you are not only full, but you're so full that you can radiate to other people. 
I've said before that sometimes the fullest people in Jesus, the ones who absolutely just radiate Jesus, if you look to their life, they've gone through aspects of gut-wrenching pain. But they've turned to God and found fullness in Him through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our kinsman, Redeemer. We've seen that in the midst of life's pain, where should our hope rest? We've discovered that in the midst of life's pain, our hope comes from Jesus, who is our generous provider. He's our kinsman redeemer. But then also that in the midst of life's pain, our hope is secured through our obedience to Christ. Yes, our hope is secured through our faith in Christ, but it's firmly secured when we are obedient to him. Sort of the main aspect of today that I want to leave us with is this, that as our generous provider and our kinsman redeemer, our hope lies in Jesus. Therefore, let our hope rest in Jesus as we remain obedient to our Savior. God, I know it hurts. God, I know it's hard. God, I know I'm scared. God, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I don't know what is the future, but I know that my hope is in you, and I'm going to remain obedient to you and trust you to see me through. And similarly to what we discovered in the story of Ruth, as we now move into the real sweet portion of this book, we discover that through Ruth's obedience, through her trust, she becomes abundantly blessed. But in order to move in that direction, we also must remember and recognize chapter one, where she and her family and those whom she loved experienced great pain. We receive the blessing of Jesus through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at Easter, don't we? But may we never ever forget Good Friday when Jesus went through that tremendous pain to bring us great hope. As a generous provider and kinsman redeemer, our hope lies in Jesus. Therefore, let our hope rest in Jesus as we remain obedient to our Savior. Let's take a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then afterwards, if you would like, you're welcome to stand as we sing our closing hymn. Father, we come before you today. I just thank you for everyone that is with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ruth. Father, we thank you for how real it is. We thank you for the fact that as we look at this book, you never speak. You're mentioned, but you never speak audibly. Yet what we discover is you're speaking through the whole thing. Your fingerprints are orchestrating this whole beautiful story. And so with that, Lord, may we remember your goodness and your grace in the midst of life's pain. May we remember indeed that you are good. Father, help us in that, to find fullness in you and then to go out into this world which is in such pain right now. And be salt and light for you. Help us to bring hope and life to those that are around us. And Father, in that, may we essentially draw people to you our kinsman redeemer. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. If you're able and you'd like, please stand as we say.